0: Hello there. I am Kimberly Hayes-Demuga. And I'm Amanda Day. And you're listening to Season 2 of the
1: Fundraising Heyday Podcast. We are a dynamic duo bringing you insight and knowledge into the ever-evolving world of grants, development, <coughs> and fundraising. Full disclosure, we're Southern. Mm-hmm. You may hear a y'all. You may hear an all
0: y'all. It happens. Yep. This podcast is brought to you by Season 2 sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. Don't let grants stress you out. Their team can help you with grant readiness and training, grant research, grant writing, and grant mock review. Visit their website, www.dhleonardconsulting.com, to learn more.
1: Kimberly, it is so good to see your face across the microphone again. Y'all can't see her, but she's doing a little happy dance, too, because obviously we're both
0: thrilled that Season 2 is underway. Me, too, for Season 2. This season we are growing, and it's showing in the best possible way. No, we're not pregnant. No, <laughs> no. medical <laughs> miracles occurring here, my friends. We're showing and growing our podcast and deepening our friendship. There we go. While we will continue to explore topics and issues with our own unique lenses, we're also bringing in leaders in the grants, fundraising, and nonprofit world. That's right. Interviews are a-coming, and it's all starting with today's episode, and I'm so excited. Several months ago, Kimberly and I attended
1: Rewrite, which was a day-long conference presented by the Kentucky Chapter of the Grant Professionals Association and the Kentucky Nonprofit Network. And they partnered and had just a full day of great presenters, (laughs) fabulous networking, and a sharing of skills to help enhance our work in the grant and nonprofit profession. The keynote speaker of the conference was Vu Le, probably best known for his blog nonprofit
0: AF, also known as nonprofit absolutely fabulous, nonprofit all fantastic, or nonprofit and falafel. Okay, we all know what AF stands for, but whatever. It's a <laughs> family podcast. Mm-hmm. So Vu gamely and graciously agreed to an interview with the two of us for um, Fundraising Heyday podcast in front of an audience. The interview included questions from Amanda and from me and questions provided by those attending the session where we explored what kind of transformation is needed in the grants world. The first half
1: of that interview is included in today's episode. So let's jump right into the interview and hear from our friend Vu.
0: This is our first podcast recorded with a guest and a studio audience. So we are excited, nervous, and thrilled to be talking to one of our favorite nonprofit bloggers, authors, and nonprofit guru. You probably know him best as Nonprofit AF, which I think stands for absolutely fabulous. Boule, thank you so much for joining us today and for speaking the truth through humor and well-chosen profanity. We are not opposed to that on this podcast. For our listeners not lucky enough to attend the Kentucky GPA Conference and hear your keynote speech at the conference in March 2019, would you please take a minute or two and introduce yourself?
2: Hi, Kimberly and Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Yeah. So I uh, run a nonprofit in Seattle called Rainier Valley Corps. Our mission is to bring more leaders of color into the nonprofit sector and also to help uh, strengthen the organizations led by communities of color. So our biggest program is Kind of like AmeriCorps or Peace Corps, where we find these leaders of color, give them a job for two years, and send them to work at full-time at organizations led by communities of color. And recently, we also expanded our mission to build what we call the community alliance model, where instead of every organization having their own HR and QuickBooks and all this, we just combine and we physically sponsor organizations, and we just handle the back office support for them. And it's a lot more efficient, and then the organizations can focus on what what they're good at. Oh,
0: sure. Yeah. What a
1: novel idea!
0: What wow. <laughs> and is that something that you are you're growing in your area, and maybe then you're thinking, hey, can we use those words like replicate and scalable, or are those bad words? <laughs> it might be bad words. I think.
2: Words, y'all. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of no, scalability, because oftentimes it's kind of like, oh, let's let's take something that works in one geographic area like and try to force too. it into a, a different geographic area with Completely different dynamics. So we it's kind of against our, policy, our values to mm-hmm. be replicating or to. But if a local organization likes what we're doing and wants to start a similar project and as long as they're leading it, then we'd be glad to help.
0: Okay. Very cool. So Amanda's going to kick it off with our questions. It should feel a lot like 60 minutes only without the excessive background checks. <laughs> kind of That's good. I don't
2: think I would pass it back.
1: Uh, Well, uh, one of the first major takeaways from your book, Unicorns Unite, is the huge disparity or disconnect between foundations and grant seekers. And so how would you explain this dynamic to someone outside of the field at, say, a cocktail party when they ask, what exactly is it that you do?
2: I don't remember most cocktail parties that I go to, (laughs) so I (laughs) would... Fair enough. (laughs) There There are some amazing foundations and really... Awesome program officers, right? People who work at foundations. Um, but we do have some challenges between the, the there's power dynamic between the nonprofit sector, nonprofits and foundations mm-hmm. overall. And if I had to explain this to someone who doesn't work outside the sector, it's kind of like, I don't know. I, I mentioned earlier, it's, it's like uh, the way we treat nonprofits kind of the way we think of poor people, right? right? Which is, well, they're great. We want to help them, but we don't really trust them with the resources we give them. So let's give them some money, but let's make sure they're not spending it on beer and hot Cheetos or or whatever. But
0: Sometimes that's just what you need.
2: I know. Beer and (laughs) hot Cheetos. That's kind of (laughs) what you need. But some of it is really ridiculous. Like a lot of support, financial support would not allow you to buy diapers for your kids. Diapers are really expensive. And now there are diaper banks that are set up because people cannot afford diapers. Right. If we just allow people the resources that they need to do what they know is best for them, and their families and that's what we should be doing but the same dynamics apply to foundations and nonprofits which is like we we like nonprofits they're really great but we don't trust them so we let's force them to have all of these applications and reporting and let's make sure that their their budget reflects whatever they say they're going to do and let's make sure they're not spending too much money on their staff or they're not paying for rent which is just ridiculous right I mean, that's just frivolous, rent and professional <laughs> development and, and good salaries for your for your staff. And this prevents us from doing our work effectively. True.
0: Very true. So you identified the issue, obviously, during the keynote earlier today and also in your book, um, Unicorns Unite. And also, there are many drawings of unicorns with great eyebrows in that book, so thank you for that. <laughs> in
1: fact, last night as we were perusing through it, Kimberly was like, I think the Voo unicorn may have the best eyebrows. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> So we'll that know. is
2: that is from my colleague, uh, the main <laughs> author, Jessamine Shamslau, who did all the drawings. She did. We yeah. wondered
1: who did that. They're
2: beautiful. So yeah, the co-authors Jessamine and Jane Jane Liu from Smarter Goods also they're yeah. brilliant. And I'm just I'm the third author, so I just get a lot of credit. But it's really it's they did all the drawings. Okay.
1: Well, and the thing I think to note too is I'm a big I read all the time. I'm a Kindle reader, and so I initially downloaded the book on my Kindle, and I could not release. And I just have the small Kindle white page. I couldn't see half the stuff in there. And so I ended up going out and get, ordering the real book, which I highly recommend because there's just, there's some things lost in translation on the electronic version Yeah, of So that's one of those books I, I say you, sh- you should buy the real book. Yeah, thing. buy the real
0: book, y'all, you know, rise up against your Amazon overlords. <laughs> and make it Do happen. what needs to be done. You can still
1: buy it through Amazon. Yeah, you that's, could.
0: That's, still works. So getting back to whatever the topic was at hand, I think it was in the book and also in your presentations and in your blog, you talk a lot about models, ways to, to end that disparity, ways to restore or bring equality in the first place to funding and funders, funders, fundees, grantors, grantees. Are there some success stories, either your own, where you are, or others you've seen in the field that you could share with folks to give us all a little hope about how these things could actually come together.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of really wonderful foundations out there. Yes, there's quite a few who are very frustrating, but we also should not lose sight of the fact that there are really amazing um, program officers and foundations. So several I would highlight. One is uh, the Whitman Institute has been advancing this concept of trust-based grant making, where we start with trust, not suspicion. And uh, Robert Sterling Clark Foundation has also been very thoughtful at reducing the, the, the work that we're trying to to do so they'll accept like an application that you wrote for another foundation, for example, which I think is really helpful.
1: I can't even fathom the joy that must bring when I mean to, to not have to spend hours and hours on someone's form when you've said the
0: same thing yeah. somebody else's form. Yeah. yeah. As a grant writer, I would love that. It would be lovely. <laughs> Are, and, are those are those both new foundations, or are they foundations that have been around for a while and sort of saw the light, the scales felt from their eyes? We are in a church recording this, so I feel <laughs> that that's an appropriate analogy.
2: They've been around for a while. I think Robert Stern and Clark might be a little bit newer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm also a big fan of the Peary Foundation, also mm-hmm. in the Bay Area. They have something called grantee-centric grant making, where it's all about what's ma- making it easier for, 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 the, for the grantees.
0: Mm-hmm. So. What if your co-authors... Yes, the, yeah. So
2: Jessamine is from the from Peary, the Peary Foundation. Foundation. Okay. Yeah. And one of the and they've been really transparent and wonderful about sharing lessons learned. For example, they were trying to be grantee-centric and said, Well, we, we just want a two-page grant report. And that's it. And because we know that you're very busy, so we just one two-page grant report. And what they discovered was that nonprofits were spending several hours translating their five-page grant report. Oh. Into a two page <laughs> oh, report. No. Nice. And now being thoughtful, they're like, you know what? Maybe we'll just accept a five page. You can have a two page or a five page because we want to save you time. And I think that's the, the critical lesson is, mm-hmm. yes. you know, sometimes you're trying to be helpful, but you might actually not be if you're not.
0: You might add family. another layer inadvertently, right? You're just right. not even
2: meaning to. So I'm a big fan of just accepting whatever nonprofits have. <laughs> all right. If, if we all could just come together into an agreement and say, this is the standardized budget, y'all. Y'all going to use it.
0: He said y'all, he by
2: said the y'all. way. I did spend four years in Memphis. Oh, yeah. uh, there we, we have knew it. We knew
0: liked you. <laughs> An inappropriate use of y'all, which is in a plural form. Right?
2: <laughs> and uh, so we, we really need to start think about this. That's, that's just we, we just waste way too much time in the sector. Hundreds of thousands of hours mm. is wasted every single year because we're just trying to translate into different funders, different formats.
1: Well, and I'm trying to think about, most of my experience is with federal grant proposals, okay? And just trying to think so about sorry. the minutiae and the, my theory is every new rule they give you is because somebody has made a mistake. And so now mm-hmm. they are assuming everybody's going to do that. So there's this new rule that comes with it. And so I'm always thinking about great ideas for foundations. How could I possibly translate that to the federal government? And is that even possible?
0: Mm.
1: Uh, I don't know the answer. We may never find out in my lifetime.
0: Listeners, he's (laughs) shaking his head. He doesn't look very helpful. And we're moving on.
2: (laughs) Well, I'm I'm sorry. Yeah, federal grants. They're rough. They're
0: fun. Yeah. I'll just leave it at that. So maybe we can't tackle the giant federal behemoth, but what are some things that we as grant writers or development directors or consultants, we're often not the executive directors in our organizations. What are some things that we can do to sort of start that conversation. I, I know, at least for me, when I'm thinking about what I can do, I ha- there's also a big fear quality. Because it's like, if I really piss off a donor and I don't get the grant, I will probably I might be fired. And mm-hmm. you know, you'd mentioned some things in your keynote. But I was wondering if you could maybe talk in a little more detail about some of those, or add some new ideas to the mix. Yeah, I always
2: say that our sector is full of brilliant people who are paralyzed by fear. Right, I mean that's and we're we're brilliant and very good looking. I mean you may not see because this is a podcast. Our studio audience is right. so beautiful, yeah. y'all. Yeah, they're amazing. Um, but yeah, we can't we can't be paralyzed by fear, and but we are, and and we have to really understand what are these immunity to and resistance to to changing things. Actually, one of uh, my my staff, our managing director, Ananda Valenzuela, came back from a training called. Immunity to change mm-hmm. and it was basically why do we keep having the same habits? Why don't we change? What, what is going on? Why don't brilliant people change? And it turns out that there's a lot of conflicting agendas that we have and some of it is unconscious, right? An Example is, um, I don't know, I, I was reading a, an article on it and it was someone who keeps sabotaging his his promotion or something like someone of color like constantly sabotaging. Every time he was rising uh, to, to a position that might, might be at the top, he starts cracking jokes or something. And the supervisor's like, why do you keep doing this? Why do you keep sabotaging yourself? You know? And what he discovered through this, going through this process was that, well, he was so, you know, he was, he's so identified with being a member of like, the, the marginalized you know, group that being at the top seems kind of like a, being like a sellout or something, right? And if you don't understand these unconscious motivations, then it might be hard. For me, for example, this, I'm really glad that this book came out because I've been wanting to write a book for a long time, but I've just never been able to do it. And I discovered it's because I have this, like, fear of failure. And the blog is great because if I write a crappy blog post one week, then people forget it about it for the next week. And the ratio of good to crappy blog posts, you know, can be maintained. But if you write one book and you spend years and people are like, man, that book is horrible. Like, so that has, and until I discovered that immunity, it was hard for me because I would come up mm-hmm. with all sorts of excuses. Like, yeah, you know, I'm busy. I have kids. I can't write. I'm writing every single week. Yeah. So we have to start thinking about why are we still immune to these things? Is it because we're afraid of losing our jobs? And if so... Is that a good way to function is that a when we to live? To live yeah. Right, exactly. So I think it's really important for us to, to examine why are we resistant to change. And this is for funders as well. We've been asking for general operating funds for decades now. There's been every single study saying that general operating funds is the best way to increase uh, to positive relationships between nonprofits and foundations. It's the best way for nonprofits to do their work. It's the most effective. Every single study has indicated this and funders still refuse to. And it is frustrating beyond comprehension. And I think it's important for funders, program officers, to understand, well, what, why are we so resistant? And talking to a few of them, it seems like, well, if, if, if foundation program officers are not focusing on this and, 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 and sort of micromanaging right. all this stuff, then what is their role? Right? Oh. If everyone's just giving multi-year unrestricted funding, what is the role of program officers? But I, my argument would be that, no, we need you for way more important things, right? And we all have the same frustration with, with mm-hmm. our board who are just, mm-hmm. like I said, stay in your lane. And many, many of them don't. They micromanage. They, they start fighting with us about the font sizes and things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when we're like, no, we need you out there fundraising, evangelizing the, the mission and building relationships that's what th- those are way more important things, like focusing on the strategies. Those are way more important things. So, I think we need to get our program officers to understand that their role is way more important. It is to connect nonprofit, it is to lift up what's working, it is to think about strategies for the entire sector. It is not about determining what I spent the $5,000 you gave me on.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then, maybe it's obviously it sounds like it's a little bit of fear on their part, certainly. But with board members, I think sometimes it's been my experience, and I don't know if you. I've had this experience, there's a fear of doing something that's so very different from what they normally do. I've worked with lawyers who like bill out at like 500 bucks an hour, some crazy thing, and they're like, oh, I could never ask someone for money for this organization. I'm like, you're, you're a litigator. I mean, you just tear people apart uh, on the stand or whatever you do, and you drive deals all day long, and you can't invite your buddy to come you know, hang out with our, you know, the folks we're working with. It's just a strange, I think a lot of it is fear.
2: It totally is, and also kind of an arrogance from the for-profit sector side too. Okay, right. and I don't, I don't understand this. I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, which is why do we keep assuming that people from the corporate sector and academia could run nonprofits better? We have just so many foundations and major nonprofits who have who who get a new CEO or ED, and they're just so proud. Oh, this person has. Forty-two years with Boeing. <laughs> like, so what? How do you know? Not, not a good how thing to, to talk about, right? <laughs> shelter, <right>? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. Right. So, how, what? What makes you? Or I was the dean of Stanford for seventeen years. So, why do you think you can run a foundation? Like, this is not to say that we that everyone who is from the corporate sector does not won't do a good job. There's lots of people who do amazing jobs here and there's also lots of crappy nonprofit leaders who've only had nonprofit experience. So but the reality is like there is this this sort of imbalance. We have an inferiority complex that we've internalized The nonprofit the for-profit sector has the superior ORI complex. None of us who've like I've run a nonprofit for 13 years. I would never think I you know what I'm going to go and apply for a Fortune 500 company <laughs> as the CEO. Like I would never think that. And yet it's not it's it's okay. So then this sort of mindset is pervasive across the sector. So then someone joins the board, and they're like, well, you should do it this way. As if because you're amazing at one thing, you would automatically be good at something else. It's like saying, it's like a carpenter saying, you know what? You know, I've been a carpenter, and you're a great beatboxer, but you should wear goggles because I always wear goggles when I do carpentry. Like, it makes no sense.
0: It might be a cool fashion statement, but it makes no sense. I hear what you're saying. Wow. So if we are talking about how to have these conversations, when you were talking about that before, that that immunity to change, it made me think about um, the imposter syndrome that mm-hmm. has mainly been focused at women, mainly from what I've read, but that feeling of you don't belong or you're not worthy kind of thing. And I think I think that's just maybe two sides of the same coin, evil coin <laughs> of poor self-esteem. Um but it also makes me think back in the in the depths of the recession, I had so many calls from like maybe someone that I had had an interchange on LinkedIn, and they called and they're like, "Hey, I've lost my job, um, so I think I'm going to work for nonprofits now. Can you can you? I'll take you to lunch. Can you teach me how to be a grant writer?" And
1: so I, I had a firefighter I worked with that was retiring, and he's like, "Can you spend a day with me? I want to do what you do." I'm like, "Sure, in one day, I'll
0: teach you everything I know." So it seems like there's a disconnect. Uh, I, think, I know, I just think yeah. there's, a, that, there's a, that whole education, uh, communication process of kind of how it does work and how we do bring value to the table and we do have specialized skills.
2: We do. They can't be
0: taught during lunch. I just No, would say. what in I would say day. to
2: anyone, a firefighter, I would be like, OK, sure, you can teach me how to be a firefighter in one day. That would be great. Let, I'm let's, going up in the ladder track tomorrow. Right, exactly. Yes. <laughs> ding how ding. hard could it be? Yeah. So the inferiority complex is—it affects women definitely. I think it also affects people of color. Absolutely. And it definitely affects the nonprofit sector versus the for-profit sector, where we we think that we're not good enough. We don't apply for for-profit jobs, or, and, you know, I think we need to get over it.
0: Yeah. I like get over it. So while we're getting over it, maybe Jason could see if there's some questions that we. Do you like that smooth segue? Oh, we worked on segues. it all night long. So, um, we'll just bring some questions up here and take a moment. And By the way, ahead. I might
2: have a funder calling me in the middle of the podcast.
0: It's, it's just gonna add drama, it'll be fantastic.
2: <laughs> so, I might have to take now like now a, call. just, just, I forgot to warn you.
0: Just, or a
2: board chair might call, I don't know.
0: Let's see. How can a development officer or ED manage an ineffectual board from a fundraising and operations perspective? So we'll be here until midnight tonight <laughs> answering this question.
2: Oh uh, Yeah. We need to work on the board governance structure because I don't think this is something that we inherited from the corporate setting that I don't think is working, right? How do we have a system? Joan Gary and I talk about this sometimes, which is like, how do we have a system where we have volunteers who see 1% of the work right and and making vast strategic decisions for us it 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 it's it's not working mm. and it's burning out people and mm-hmm. a lot of board members have no idea what their role is so then they focus on micromanagement and and things
0: because it's easier in certain ways than coming up with the, really the big questions maybe it's easier to like well, let's debate this font or logo. We need to change our colors instead of this is there's an imbalance that needs to be addressed and no one's talking about it.
2: Yeah. So how do we change this? I think this is going to be it's going to take a little bit of time. Sometimes I would say one is you got to bring in some, someone from the outside to come mm-hmm. in. Right. Because we have this ethics, outsider efficacy bias is what I'm calling it, which is we just listen to someone from outside. Like- the
0: consultant syndrome.
2: Yeah, exactly. But this is where consultants can play a really important role. So bringing in someone who really understands this and says, you know what, board members, you're not doing your jobs, right? You, you, you just need to stop micromanaging. You need to stay in your lane. And do it in a way that they would actually understand this. We had uh, another ED who was also frustrated. And she brought in a consultant who had to use some football metaphors. Be like, um, you are like the team owners, OK? You cannot be the quarterback. You cannot be out there on the field. You can determine some of the stuff around the field the boundaries and all this stuff, but you need to get off the field so your players can play, right? And that's what you gotta you gotta do. So I, I do like the Carver model, which is the board sets boundaries and then lets the job let the, the staff do the job. And the other thing is what I really appreciate about that model is this idea of the board saying what the the ED cannot do, not what the ED can do. So. People are like, well, that seems limiting. No, it's not, it's the opposite. These are the three things that you cannot do. Everything else you can do without checking Mm -hmm. with us, right? Don't murder anyone. (laughs) (laughs) That's always the first rule, right? Or, you know, like don't spend more than 10% outside the budget or or whatever, like having these concrete things. But I have so many EDs, because we're very nice people, we, we, we go and we ask for permission but we really should not be asking for permission at all. There was one ED who was just like, oh, we just have this really rough gala and I want to give the team the day off after the gala. But the board member said no. I'm like, why did you ask them for permission? This has nothing to do with them. It is in your purview to give your team the day off or not. Give them the entire week off if you want. But that is your job
1: but i think we're so conditioned as you said earlier a lot of a lot of us look at the board that's our boss you know so it's always like you you ask the boss for permission so i really no. loved your analogy of it's like the branches of government you're all equal everybody has different responsibilities but you don't necessarily like that direct report is a different thing which
2: that's exactly it. board great. members individually have exactly zero power that's what i, I, I got got ed <laughs> happy hour someone said zero that. Board members, I think it was Vanessa uh, from uh, from Vancouver, who was just like, each board member has exactly zero power as an individual board member. It is when they are collectively deciding on something, that is where they have all their influence. So I remember this because we fall prey to this all the time. I remember uh, one board member who hated my guts. I don't know why. And uh, I mean, I brought him on the board.
1: Oh. And
2: yeah, I, I, I had hand-selected him to help reform the board, and it backfired. He became one of the most awful board members ever. Ooh. And uh, yeah, he was just really bad. And at, and at one point, he wanted to help with the, with the gala. And I was like, yeah, you should be involved, thank you. And he wanted to design the flyer for the gala. And he designed it, and it was really bad. And the entire team was like, we cannot send out this gala. Like, this is terrible. It was, the, it was the spring gala, and he used like dark red and and black and white. It was like the game of thrones. It was, <laughs> right,
0: exactly. It was
2: like the twilight gala. I'm like, no, Whoa. it's spring. We want more colors. He's in like, Washington. no.
1: Forks is not that far away, right? <laughs> oh, here we go.
2: But anyway, it escalated from this flyer into this full blown thing where he started to hate me and wanted to subpoena every single staff meeting minutes, staff meeting minutes. Whoa. Wow. Right. And I'm like, no, you don't get staff meeting minutes. You're one board member. If you can get the entire board to vote on me sending you staff meeting minutes, then I will do so. But as one board member, you get nothing.
1: Yeah. We need it. That's answer. why you're a nonprofit AF. Right? That's right. <laughs>
2: anyway, he left so the board.
1: Yeah. I've got another audience question for you. I love this one. It says, how do you keep your cool when confronted with stupidity and condensation? Um, um,
2: condensation. <laughs> oh my word! And now
1: you that's, just get yeah, a little bit. I'm a great a writer, towel. You right? Just wipe your brow. Say the word. I
0: don't embarrass myself again. That's why we have sound engineers. Yes. So there's this really cool question from our audience. I'd like to ask that now. How do you keep your cool when confronted with stupidity and condescension? That's the word. I almost. I like the first one better.
2: Thanks. I like to assume the best intentions in people, right? Because mm-hmm. I, I think it's, it's easy to rail against people. But I do think that our sector is full of wonderful people who want to do what's right for our communities, including most of our program officer colleagues. And it's just, we forget this sometimes, that you know, foundations are also nonprofits, and they also have their own challenges as well. Um, so just having this sort of compassion, understanding right, is, is one thing. If you assume that people are out to screw you, then yeah, you're going you're gonna to treat them differently. And, and that affects you, too. I think it's just way better for your own mental health to think, you know, most people mean well. Maybe they just had a bad day. Maybe they don't know this stuff. Maybe they weren't trained in this. And I am going to try to help them. Okay. So, And that's why I, I try to use metaphors that can be easier. Because there's a lot of terminologies and concepts that are very difficult for people to understand. And we're not, a lot of us are not training this stuff. No mm-hmm. one, you know, we don't, we, we take, I always joke that we take like an entire year to learn trigonometry. Trigonometry! <laughs> it's an important science, I'm sure, for engineering and space exploration. But Triggers? when has any one of us, I'm sorry, I don't know. right? No, we don't use trigonometry, except when we use tangents. And we go on a tangent, which is what I'm doing right now.
0: <laughs> oh, that's what this podcast is all about. You go Tangents. tangent, away. Yes. Like
2: so the point is, a lot of people are not trained in issues that we think that that we're that rile us up. For example, racial equity, right. um, diversity, inclusion, all those things. Like we we haven't been trained. The things that are most important in school for kids to learn, like financial management, or driving, are things that are like optional. Yeah. Right. And then we learn things that I'm sure are also very important, but they may not be used. So we gotta be understanding of That's people. True. And then we gotta be solution focused. And we gotta not we gotta remove the sort of personal, you know, um, stuff from people. So it's like, no, this is not a personal thing. Mm-hmm. This is one person who may not have all the information. Let's try to remove the sort of sense of, you know, just like it being a personal issue.
0: That wraps up the first half of our interview with Vule. We had such a great time chatting with him and laughing with him because he is hilarious and insightful. And if you haven't checked out his blog, Nonprofit AF, or his book, Unicorns Unite, we highly recommend you do so.
1: If nothing else, you will certainly want a copy of the book because the unicorn drawings are
0: fabulous. There's a couple of really good eyebrow unicorns that you just need to check out. Even if you don't want to change the grants world, go to it for the unicorns.
1: Thank you again to our Season 2 sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. We appreciate their support in making grants less stressful. Visit their website, www.dhleonardconsulting.com, to learn more. And
0: remember... There is no specific college degree in grant writing or fundraising, but there are a lot of good people with experience to share, training programs, and other ways to learn. We'd love for this podcast to be one of your favorite ways to learn.
1: Stay tuned for upcoming episodes this season, including our next one, which is the second half of our interview with Kulay. We will continue the discussion about the inequities in the grant and nonprofit world. Thanks for listening, y'all. Bye.